0: Ellen asked me today if she needed to take all this down for the vacation Bible school. And I said, well, you know, of course not, because I care for Ellen, don't want her to give more work. And I didn't know what it said, but I like it. Focus, (laughs) Uh, glasses, binoculars, hear, live. We're almost in the middle of this epistle. I think every one of those words Peter would say to us, especially here in chapter 2 beginning in verse 11. So if you have your Bibles, love for you to turn there. If you want to watch the screen, the words are projected. He says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The man was born in Corpus Christi, Texas. His father was an Army Air Corpsman. When he was three, he moved his family to San Francisco. And that's when this little three-year-old and his family joined a black Pentecostal church. At age 12, this young boy was a musical prodigy. He not only played in church and in school, he was actually on television. A show called The Original Amateur Hour. Nine years later, at 21, he moved to Los Angeles. He was hired by Capitol Records with a contract to write musicals. And he said he'd been there six months when Jesus was in His face. He said, Jesus changed me. Every day after work, I'd go to Sunset Boulevard and I'd walk up to men and women, hippies, business people, tramps, wealthy, talk to them about Jesus. Everyone the Holy Spirit directed me to, I spoke to. You know what else He did? He took two-thirds of his royalties and he bought food and clothing for some Christian halfway houses. One day he was walking down Sunset Boulevard and he met some people that were part of the Salt Company coffee house. Hollywood Presbyterian Church started that. They asked him to come and they didn't know anything about his musical ability, but when he came, he began to sing and he became a hit. People would come from miles away to listen to him. And that's where he perfected a new genre of music called Christian rock. After the first year, he released his first album. Two things happened. Capitol Records fired him. (laughs) And evangelists and pastors all over the country began to excoriate him saying, he plays the devil's music. That's why on his second album, he wrote a song called, Why Does the Devil Have All the Good Music? (laughs) Didn't stop him. That second album in 2013, was taken by the Library of Congress and inducted to the National Recording Registry. The first Christian album ever inducted into that registry. You know what they said? Larry Norman mixes the Christian Gospel with strong political themes meant to reach the disillusioned Who are disillusioned by the government and by the church with the abrasive urban reality of the gospel? That's pretty good for the Library of Congress. (laughs) He called the album Only Visiting This Planet. First album I ever bought. 1980, he was interviewed by the New Yorker magazine, and they asked him about that album. And he said this, on the front cover, I'm standing in the middle of New York City with my hand on top of my head, with buildings and traffic all pressing in on me. I have my hand on top of my head as if I'm saying, what is this? Is this what life is meant to be? And on the back of the album, I'm standing in Stonehenge, the site of a previous civilization with its own monoliths. The Druids apparently constructed these stone monoliths to praise and honor the sun god. But now their civilization is as dead as New York City's will be one day. I'm just standing there looking around wondering what happened to kill them off to reduce an entire culture to a bunch of stones. At age 25, Larry Norman understood what Peter understands. You and I are only visiting this planet. We're just passing through. And with that comes incredible privilege and withering responsibilities. Larry Norman sang about them. Peter writes about them. He begins, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And then from there, He proceeds to give them the same three lessons Jesus taught him. They're the same three lessons Jesus would teach us. And fortunately for us, Peter talks about each one of these in these seven verses. And they all start with a C. So let's dig in and see what the Lord would say to us through our brother Peter. First, notice our citizenship. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Somebody has said it happens again and again in the New Testament. The greatness of a passage lies not only on the surface in what is actually said, but in the ideas and convictions that underlie what is said. And there is no greater example than in this particular passage. Look what Peter says. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now the word in Greek for urge is very dramatic. It literally means to come up alongside of someone and plead with them in their ear. Maybe that's what your mother did when you were young. (laughs) Maybe that's what you do with someone who's hard of hearing. That's what he means. I have come up to you and I am pleading with you in your ear. Listen to me. And as he pleads, he mentions two things. First of all, he says remember that you are sojourners and exiles. And the reason he says it is because so often we forget that. Now think of who's writing this. This is the same man who excoriated Jesus for saying, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. This is the same guy who after Jesus washes his feet within hours, he takes out a sword and slices off the ear of a Roman soldier. You know, I used to think that he must have taken that sword from one of the soldiers. Yet the Bible says that's not true. It says Peter having a sword sliced off the man's ear. What would cause Peter to bring a sword into the Garden of Gethsemane? There's only one reason. He forgot he was in exile. Remember what Jesus said? Those who seek to save their lives will lose them. And that's exactly what Peter's trying to do in the Garden of Gethsemane. The first lesson Jesus teaches any of us, and He has to teach it over and over again, and that is this. I don't need your help. I don't need your agenda. I don't need you to defend Me. This is not your home. You are passing through. There's a famous line that's attributed to Jesus, but it's not in the Gospels. So I don't know if He said it, but it sounds like Him. Listen to this. He said, The world is a bridge... A wise man passes over it but never builds his home on it. Years ago, Tony Campola wrote a book and in it he told this uh, seminal story that is the jumping off point for the book. He said there were a couple of college students that snuck into a department store after hours and they hid until everybody left. And once everybody's gone, all night they begin to change the price tags. TVs become ten bucks, refrigerators are twenty, socks are four hundred. They leave, and in the morning they open the store, and it's bedlam, and they have to close down the store for a week. That's what Peter's saying about this world. There are things you thought that were valuable, but now that you know you're an exile, they're cheap. And the things you thought were cheap, many of them are valuable beyond words because you're citizens of a new kingdom. It's a kingdom with privileges and responsibilities. There's a passage in Jeremiah that's often quoted. In fact, it's often in graduation cards or even on license plates. And the reason is because they cherry pick We tend to do that with the Bible. We find something good, especially if it's a promise. We take it out of context. In seminary, it's not called cherry picking. It's called eisegesis. (laughs) And that means you take something out of its context and then you use it for your own purpose. And that's what they've done. Many have done with this. Jeremiah 29.11 For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not evil to give you a future and a hope. Now that's the promise. But four verses earlier in verse 7, He gives us the responsibility. And most people miss it. It's this responsibility that possesses Peter. Listen to what the Lord says through Jeremiah. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For its welfare, in its welfare you will find your welfare. Do you hear what Peter is saying? That's exactly what Jeremiah is saying. You are an exile. That means that you can no longer live in this world being indifferent. Saying, well, it doesn't matter. I'm a member of the kingdom of heaven. I don't care what happens here. The Lord says, when I send you into exile, into Babylon, into Rome, into Asia Minor, wherever I send you, pray for the welfare of those pagans. It doesn't mean to live with indifference. It doesn't mean that you will live and die on your political agenda believing that if your side doesn't win, it's all over. It means that you will love without exception with no expectation that you will be receiving love in return. I love what an old Puritan wrote. It probably ought to be written in the flyleaf of every Bible. He said this: If all your attention and concentration is on the the hostility or indifference of the world, if the exiguousness of your progress in the Christian faith—I love that word, exiguousness—you know what it means. Small and inconsequential. If your progress in the Christian life seems to be small and inconsequential, you may grow weary and discouraged. At such times, you need to be reminded that you are in exile. God has placed you in this world with one charge to work and pray for the welfare of others. Without regard to your own welfare. That's what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's the first lesson Jesus teaches. Second, notice the second lesson our conduct. Look at verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of your flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, this is the second thing Peter is pleading with us in our ear. Abstain from the passions of your flesh that war against your soul. Nobody knew about that war any more than Peter. Remember when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you know the law. What does it say? And the man answers. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. One thing you lack. Go sell all you have and give it to the poor. Come and follow Me. And He walks away sorrowfully. The disciples are shocked. They believe that wealth was a sign of divine blessing. So when Jesus says to the man, one thing you lack, go sell it and give all to the poor. And He walks away sorrowfully. Jesus then says to His disciples how hard it is for a rich man to enter the Kingdom of Heaven. In fact, it's impossible. And that's the point. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do to gain access to the kingdom of God. You know, I love what Luther said I bring to Jesus one thing my sin. And yet, listen to what Peter says after Jesus says it's impossible. He says, Lord, we've left everything. How about us? I mean, talk about being stuck on yourself. Talk about being caught up in your own passions. We've said this so many times, and yet it bears repeating. Every one of us in this room, everyone on the street, everyone everywhere has two basic psychological needs. To love and be loved and have a sense of worth. And as Christians, we know there's only one who can meet those needs. And yet, our flesh is always saying, Look for a substitute. When Peter says, Abstain from the passions of the flesh that war against your soul, he knows what he's talking about. He's not talking about losing your salvation. He's not talking about disqualifying yourself from the Kingdom of God. He's talking about fruitful living. He's talking about being useful to the Kingdom of God. Last Friday, I had an opportunity to play a course that I love. Golf course. And the reason I love it is because it's so hard. It's the only course... Well, one of two courses I've ever played in my life that often penalizes good shots. It's brutal. And yet there's one advantage. You never play it alone. You have a caddy. And the caddy's always urging you. Giving you advice. You know what you'll never hear a caddy say? If you miss this shot, I'm kicking you off the course. You'll never hear a caddy say, if you don't hit the ball on that line, you're done for the day. You know what a caddy says? If you hit it there, you will avoid trouble. If you put that putt on this line, you will be rewarded. On this hole, if you aim for the left side of the fairway and you hit it, you will avoid a very long hole in a long day. That's what Peter's saying to these suffering Christians. When he says abstain from the passions of your flesh, what he means is they'll sideline you. They'll get in your way of your ministry. They'll sap the life out of you. You become less and less effective for the gospel. And he knows exactly what that means because of the way he starts this chapter. Henry preached it last week. You are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. What's he talking about? He's talking about a temple. In fact, he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. And every Jew and every Gentile would know that. All over the Roman Empire, there were temples. But for the people of God, there was one temple, and it was in Jerusalem, and it was the place where God dwelt. It was built of stone. If you wanted to have your sins forgiven, you went to the temple. If you wanted to meet with God, you went to the temple. If you wanted to have a priest mediate between you and the Lord, you went to a temple. And what Peter is saying is that temple in Jerusalem has been replaced by the church. What God intended to do with that temple in Jerusalem was just give us a picture of what he wanted to do and what he wants to do with his church. You are living stones, you are being built into a spiritual house. You know something amazing? Less than 10 years after Peter writes this, the Roman army goes into Jerusalem and it lays waste. It decimates the temple so that not one stone is left on another. You know what the Lord is saying through the Roman defeat of the temple? That's all over. No more sacrifices, no more priests. No more stipulations of the Old Covenant. The old has passed away. It's the end of the age. And like a good caddy, what Peter is saying is you're in the game. You're now the dwelling place of the Lord. He's in your midst. He wants to use you for His glory. Now abstain from the passions that war against your soul. Keep your conduct honorable. For everything God intends to do, He's going to do through you, and that's exactly what happens in the next hundred years. Within a hundred years, eighty percent of all the people of Asia Minor have become Christians. Pagans would ask Christians when they when they passed them on the street or in the marketplace, "Where is your temple?" And the Christians would say, "Come and see." They bring them to the house church. And there they meet Jesus. You see, when Peter says keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, it's so that the work of Jesus Christ would not be impeded. The love and forgiveness that they will experience within the body of Christ will change their lives it will propel them to Jesus. And you know what's amazing? You can read this in church history, but you can read it today and hear it today. The common testimony of those who come to know Christ after knowing Christians who are in fellowship is something like this. You know, Jesus, if You can love them, You can love Me. It's never, they are so wonderful, I want to be just like them. No, it's the opposite. Lord, if you can give them grace, then surely you can give me grace too. And then, third, notice the condition. Look at verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now, that's a contradiction, it seems. Live as people who are free, but live as servants of God. You know the word translated servant really is a poor translation. And you can rarely, rarely say that about the ESV. The word here is actually bond slave. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as bond slaves of God. You know what a bond slave is? Exodus 21. If a servant declares, I love my master, and my wife and children do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. And when it is determined... The master then takes him to the doorpost and pierces his ear with an awl, so that therefore for the rest of his days he will be the property of his master and he will be a bond slave. What Peter is saying is you're free because you're a bond slave of Jesus, you're not your own. You're His property. In 1965, in March, Martin Luther King and a host of other civil rights leaders organized an 86-mile march from Selma to Birmingham. The reason they marched, you know, was to speak out against segregation. And unlike so many of the protests we've seen in the last month, this was nonviolent. In fact, they were committed to nonviolence. So as they marched, and you've seen the pictures, maybe you've even seen some of the video footage, they're holding hands, many of them, and they're singing songs of hope and victory. And while they march across that bridge, in a nonviolent way, there are many who are watching them that aren't singing. They're not holding hands. They're holding batons. They're holding whips. They have vicious dogs on chains. And the result is many scores of marchers were bloodied and beaten, and others died on that bridge. But several months after the march, one of the men who was an assailant who was responsible for killing at least two marchers wrote these words. We were beating them as if they were slaves. But the truth is, the freest people on that bridge that day were the ones who were being beaten. And that's exactly what... Peter is saying to every one of us. You know how he could say it? Because he was in Jerusalem that day. He saw Jesus with his own eyes. And now in light of the resurrection, he knows that the freest man in Jerusalem on Good Friday was the one that was hanging between two criminals. That's why Peter can say something that's absolutely breathtaking. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. The brothers and sisters in Christ. Fear God and honor the emperor. Even Nero! The reason he can say it is because he lived most of his life bound by his own passions. His own self-interest. His own belief in his own agenda. But now he's free. Instead of being a slave to the passions of his flesh, he's now a bond slave to the One who changed his life. And look at the change. Here's a man who cut off a soldier's ear outside of Jerusalem. Who 30 plus years later, when he's under arrest and soldiers are ready to kill him, he says to them, Hang me upside down on a cross because I'm not worthy to be killed like my Savior was. How does that happen? How do you explain that kind of change in a person's life? It happens the same way it happened for anyone. You learn the lessons. And you relearn them over and over again. You learn the lesson of citizenship. You learn the lesson of conduct. You learn the lesson of your condition. And Peter's not the only one who's learned it. There's so many... Even today, that have learned it. Jesus can do the same thing for you if you let Him. And you know something you ought to let Him? Because there's only one way to live free. There's only one way to know that you're only visiting this planet. There's only one way that we can be a tool in the hand of our Savior. That's simply to go to Him and say, I'm not much, but what I've got I give to you. That's what Larry Norman did. That's what many of the people who marched in Selma did. That's what Peter did. That's what He calls us to do. And it's a lot easier to do it together than alone. Think about that. Amen.